It's a great pleasure to welcome to the conversation Chris Snook, Managing Partner at Launch House, based in Phoenix, Arizona. A digital agency and tech startup veteran, Chris is a brand humanizer at large, consulting uh, several digital agencies and some of today's leading uh, consumer brands and B2B enterprises. He mentors entrepreneurs with Founders Institute Globally and ASU Project Humanities. He's the co-author of three uh, other books, including the international bestseller, Wealth Matters Makeover Edition. The subject of today's conversation is uh, Chris's book, Digital Sense, the common sense approach to effectively blending social business strategy, marketing technology, and customer experience. And uh, Chris, as you know, our uh, audience con consists primarily of investors and fund managers, and I believe uh, you know, your insights in uh, the world of uh, social business strategy and uh, digital marketing uh, will be quite helpful uh, to our members. So perhaps we could just start with uh, having you tell us uh, why you wrote the book, what inspired you to do so. Yeah, I appreciate it, John. And thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm very excited to speak to your audience today. Um, digital Sense came out um, January of 2017, late, late 2016, I think, but I think it originally officially dropped like the last couple of days of 2016. And, you know, at that time, um, the reason for writing that book, the selfish reason for writing that book was we had an agency in the portfolio, um, that we were working to turn around and get reacquired. Um, and so I was kind of heading up a, a project to help do that. And, uh, and, and I knew that essentially in order to do that, we needed to um, leverage a voice in the market and, and a position in the market that differentiated, you know, not only my personal brand, but leverage my personal brand and some of the thought leadership to help drive the right kind of brands and companies uh, to that front door so that that company could sign, you know, sustainable uh, clients for, for lack of a better word. So the, the selfish reason was, um, there was, there was a marketing uh, impact that was very pragmatic about putting out another book that was focused around all the shifts happening at the macro and micro level around digital and digital transformation. Um, the, you know, the, the personal reason being like, I'm a, I'm a person who's curious. I like to think, I like to um, evaluate, and, and more importantly, I like to build stuff uh, in the, in the world of business, the, the kind of more high level version of why did, why did I put the book out is I had come across Travis Wright, who was my co-author several years earlier, back in 2012, I believe it was. And he was, um, rapidly becoming one of the emerging uh, thought leaders around marketing technology and, and every 4,000, 6,000, however many different marketing technology firms are out there, he had pretty much demoed them all. And he was kind of this subject matter expert in the area of MarTech and, I was curious to do something with him. I thought that the world was missing a framework as it related to evaluating businesses and business models and, and how to actually digitally transform them. There's been a lot of great work, which we reference in the book from Gene Bliss and, and, and others in this space. But I felt like there was a gap in helping organizations and those who are the stakeholders advising or, or making board decisions in those organizations to create a common picture for what customer experience was within that. And so that was the premise is 
do people have a common picture on the screen of their mind when they hear the word customer experience, which at that time, as you're well aware, and still so to this day, was kind of a buzzword or becoming one rapidly. So we didn't think that they had a common picture and that, that created an opportunity to create one and help, um, help provide a framework whereby they could design their own picture and then disseminate it across uh, far and wide their organization to, to get better results. How would you um, summarize some of the key messages uh, in the book? Well, it would, it would build on what I just said. I think, you know, the number one message is if I asked everyone listening to this, who's probably wearing more of an investor hat uh, based on your audience, um, look at across your portfolio of investments and, and depending on whether you're private equity or whether you're, you know, um, passively or actively in, in investing is, is different. But if you look across the things in your portfolio and you were to say, what does that company mean when it says customer experience? And do I believe that they all are marching towards the same thing? Um, the answer is probably no. And so the, the number one theme was, if I say to everyone listening to this virtually and whatever, that my car is in the parking lot of uh, this virtual conference or this physical conference, go find it, you know, depending on how many people in here, there's going to be an exponential issue that gets visible really quickly that none of us know what we're looking for, right? Let alone how to get it. And, um, and so the real underlying theme was, okay, well, if we can agree that we need a common picture to mark, march from, and it doesn't matter any more than it matters what color my car is. It doesn't matter what that common picture is. It matters that we all see the same thing. Human beings think in pictures. And that's, that's really one of the underlying themes is that, if I say to you, uh, John, think of your refrigerator and everyone else plays along with this right now, you don't have to think. Your brain right now sees the refrigerator, yes or no? Absolutely. And if I asked you, is it stainless steel or is it wood or is it white or like, what is it? White. And as you say that, you see it, yes? Yep. And does it open right to left or is it top and bottom or double, like what, which way does it open? left to right and is it full or is it empty full good so you just you know somebody just went to the grocery store now if i say that about your kitchen sink you see the same thing and you can tell me whether there's dishes in it from this morning or not and you don't have to think too much your brain immediately in a in a millisecond can see that and that's how human beings are wired and so you know when we simplify stuff down to its base level one of the themes was how do i take a picture that's worth a thousand words that I have in almost every other area of my life and then apply it to an organization that is moving in a market that is dynamic, that is shifting beneath my feet, that has new rules and new disruptions happening daily where my profit centers are being stolen, but my costs are going up. My security is worse than ever. My, my threats are, are increasing. My cost of uh, capital may still be low, but um, I'm using it to just basically buy back stock and, and pad my earnings because I, I don't have any other where to invest it and, and actually see the ROI. And, and I know that the bubble is forming and I'm wondering what I'm going to do in the next recession and like all these things that add complexity. And then we say, well, what do we all need to be in business? What do we all need to be in business? I don't, regardless of what the business is. Not sure. The most important thing you're overthinking it because you're smart. The most important thing is we need a customer. Correct. Right? Like, like, again, the problem with smart people is we overthink stuff. 
and I'm not trying to, you know, diminish the, 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 the art and the science behind all this, but again, an underlying theme was you have all this complexity that's coming at you at rates that none of us can fully comprehend. And even if we could, we have to duplicate that across an enterprise of 450, uh, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 people. And at the end of the day, the only game we're playing is customer acquisition and customer retention. Because if I can't acquire new customers faster than the next guy, I lose. If I can't retain my current customers, I lose. And customers are more promiscuous than ever. And we're all customers. So we don't have to wonder if it's the other person that's promiscuous. What are you loyal to today? I'm asking everyone individually as they listen to this, what am I loyal to? I'm loyal to my need in the moment that I have it. Nothing more, nothing less. Now, if that happens to be a brand that has served me for a long time, sure, they get the benefit of the doubt. But today, Liberty Mutual, as much as I've loved you for a long time, my rates are high. And if a lemonade comes along or someone else comes along, and I don't think it's just a six-month scam to get me in to then raise my rates right back up, I'm out. Right? Loyalty no longer is based on habit. It's based on the need of the market, the user experience, and the way that you're treating your customer. But you can't just treat it well on the front end because the back end is where the rubber meets the road. And so, you know, we really looked at this problem as this isn't a marketing issue, even though we directed the book heavily because we had to with the publisher towards, you know, the marketing domain and, and to kind of that, that managerial level. The reality was this was, this was a top-down, bottom-up you know, business book that was saying, here's a framework, the experience marketing framework that you need to consider whether you're investing in stuff, how you're going to invest in stuff, whether you are building a business from the ground up or whether you're trying to steer a Titanic into new waters while speedboats are racing past you, taking all your customers and profit centers, right? This is a book that was like the customer is the asset, period, end of story, Nothing else matters because everything else in business today is a commodity that can be knocked off by a new entrant or by a competitor that you never had to compete with before in less than 24 hours. And if you doubt that, ask MasterCard how they feel about Google Pay or Apple, right? Ask, um, ask yourself if your business requires someone to take out their credit card, how they feel about Uber because the expectation levels have been set by people that aren't even in our business anymore. And all of us are responding to that. If you have to ship stuff, nobody wants to pay to ship because Amazon ruined that forever. And we don't want to wait either. And so all these new cost centers emerge and yet it's harder and harder to acquire the customer and acquire the talent to serve that customer in a way that has any kind of meaning um, and, and so these were real problems that we think still exist today, but we felt like were the themes. If we could simplify it without dumbing it down and we could help people get their arms around it and their head around it, then, then we'd have value. And, and it seems like we've achieved that because we've had, you know, a reasonable level readership. We like to call it a medium bestseller um, or a medium seller because, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, but it just dropped in China uh, two months ago in, in Chinese language. And so, you know, um, it'll be interesting. We're, uh, we're doing our part for the trade war, I guess. Well, thank you for that perspective. Um, I'll, I'll just bring in another angle that I think 
could also be of interest to our audience, and that is that uh, many of the folks listening are uh, investment managers basically running their own investment firm with everything that's part of actually running a business. So it's not just uh, picking stocks for a portfolio, but it's actually uh, acquiring customers uh, as well uh, for that firm. And, um, you know, I'll just add in the investment management world these days, there's a lot of firms out there. And so being able to build one's reputation and really differentiate oneself um, is key to attracting capital. So perhaps we could look at it from that perspective. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'd love to. I think, you know, if you're a fund manager, um, it's, so it's a really interesting question, right? Because every business can apply this and every business should apply this. And in some cases, I, I don't want to say the smaller because, you know, um, some smaller funds have multiple billion dollars on your management. So the, the nice thing is, is that we all have customers. In some cases, our customers are pension funds. In some cases, they're accredited investors. In some cases, you know, they're people that are just buying coffee. But if we're focusing on, you know, investment funds as a business model, and you think about some of the opportunities and constraints, um, one that we're heavily focused on, you know, recently as it relates to uh, the third edition, which is coming out in an audiobook format of Wealth Matters, which you had mentioned earlier, um, there's two editions of, but we've got a new one that I'm working on right now that'll be released in September called Wealth Matters 3.0. And it's this macro investment thesis for a world disrupted. And it's building on a lot of the, the business forces that we talk about in digital sense, but we don't, don't, we don't talk about them in digital sense the way we talk about them here because we're talking about something different. Uh, it builds on a, a similar bias or a similar thesis that, that has kind of been honed. And when you think about investment, um, the, the investment business, we all need a hook, right? We all need that, that thing, or that product or that, that hook that is getting someone's attention because if capital acquisition is our main form of, of value because we're taking 2% and 20 or whatever it is. And, and um, you know, we, we want to be able to invest in a certain strategy and it requires a certain AUM. Well, that's no different than someone who's selling skincare. It's just different because our product and our offering is different than skincare, but we have channels of distribution. We have, uh, you know, we have competitors. We have other people that are trying to get that um, 1% of the, of the world right? Or, or the, the pension fund, we're getting those people to give us the, you know, the, the ability to manage the money versus someone else. And how do we differentiate? Certainly past portfolio performance and all those things are, are the key things that people are going to look at in that world. Um, but how do we report? How transparent are we? What, um, what problems are we solving in the way that we do investor relations? What are some of the things? And so the framework would apply to any business. So like, maybe we should just walk through the framework a little bit and they can read about it more, you know, if they get the book, but um, so there's three levels and two loops, right? So we call it three layers and two loops to the framework. And, and if you can think of a triangle, uh, each level is a triangle. And so, you know, on the, on the most base level, it's thinking about what is the customer need at the, at the top of that triangle. So if you're, you know, drawing along, you could have customer need as the, as the top of, of that first triangle. And this is really putting yourself doing, doing things like empathy mapping, which we talk about in deep and, and how to do it, 
putting yourself in the shoe of the customer, right? And so if you empathize with investors, right, people that are parking their money with you to get an ROI that they can't get as reasonably or as efficiently um, by investing themselves directly, right? That's the only reason they would invest in a fund. What are their needs? Well, you know, you, you could probably name them, John, but, you know, throw out like one or two needs that, that a, you know, that an LP might have. Well, one is uh, good returns, investment returns. Yeah, they want alpha, right? So they want better than average out because, again, they're going to make a decision based on whether they think they can get alpha with, you know, firm A versus firm B, C, D, and E, right? Like that's one. So better than average returns. What's another one that we know they care about? Liquidity, being able to uh, get their money back when they need it. Right. So liquidity. A third one might be preservation of capital, right? Mm -hmm. Risk, mm -hmm. right? How yep. we, what, what's our risk mitigation? So, you know, um, portfolio mix, whatever it is, but the, the, we know that, you know, investing capital is one thing to get a return. The other thing is not losing the money we already have. And maybe that comes first and, and then we want the better return. And then the third thing is liquidity and, and maybe transparency and reporting. And maybe a fourth thing would be um, tax mitigation, right? Or tax uh, something, right? Like sure. something related to not, not having drains on it. Mm -hmm. And so we would, we would the, the, using the framework, you basically go, okay, those are my customer needs. And, um, and I'm going to narrow it down to the top three, right? So if we just pick the top three, pick the top three. So now what you've done is you put yourself in the shoe of the investor and you go, that's what they care about. All at the end of the day, what they're running in their head is these three things and whoever can in their mind provide them those three things the most consistently, the most often, and the most obviously is probably who they're going to pick. And ultimately, as long as that continues, that's who they're going to be loyal to because those are their needs and their needs are being met. If their needs are not being met in one of those or all those areas, then they're going to be looking elsewhere to fill those needs. This simple, right? The other node would then be down to the left. So if you look at the triangle, you go to the bottom left corner, you'd look at competitors. Who am I competing with in those same need states? Now, the obvious thing would be, you know, you graph yourself using somebody else, whether it's BCG or some, some other framework for, you know, competitive landscape. And you, you say, well, here's where we stack against other benchmarks, right? Forrester's got a thing, whatever. But it's beyond that. It's who do we compete with? And let's list out who we compete with for that same customer segment of LP who has those same needs. Who do we see as competitors? And you just list them out, right? Simple exercise. But then who do we indirectly compete with? So I gave you the example earlier of like who's setting the expectation, right? Who's setting the expectation of my customer or of my LP and the way that they're handled. So in some cases, this has nothing to do with financial services or management. This could be some expectation of, of how they receive communication from a rental car company or from anybody, meaning like there's an app or there's some, there's some behavioral thing that is shifted that now has become a, you know, an expectation or something that if you do it, they feel like you're current and like you're modern. Right. And I know there's a lot of regulatory and a lot of things like that. So I'm not, I'm not getting into specifics. I'm saying just to open up the brain. That's the point of the exercise is to open up the brain. What are the, who are we competing with indirectly as it relates to setting expectations in the eyes of my customer? So, Maybe you can think of one, John, top of your head. Maybe you can't. It's outside of financial services. But if you can't, 
you know, we, we can, we can move on to the, to the, you know, to the next part, but yeah, I'm not sure about outside of financial services, but one of the things that that's kind of an indirect competitor is um, let's say ETFs or um, basically index products that are, you know, very liquid, very low cost, uh, track the market. And so they have some features where, um, you know, active managers kind of have to match those or, or it's actually a perfect example, right? So we're doing a lot of work, you know, kind of on the front end of, of this whole opportunity zone law in the, in the States, right? So you've, you know, the, the law is not fully baked, but it's 95% of the way there. Final guidance should be coming out from treasury sometime in the next month. In April, it became very, very clear, at least directionally how they were going to treat business investment and multi-asset portfolios. And so opportunity zone funds, um, have a lot more clarity. And so that's an area that we, we specialize in and we're working on. We have, we have one of our own and we're, you know, we're using that inside of our portfolio as it relates to the, to the technology and blockchain development stuff we do, as well as some of our less risky, you know, asset mix. And if I am competing in that space alone, there are no fee or low fee funds. There are two and 20 models, right? So, um, just like, and then there's also just the, like you said, the ETFs or the index funds are the things where, you know, there's a, there's a technology platform, share builder or E-Trade or whatever, right? something maybe more grown up even, where I can go, yeah, but why would I, why would I pay fees? You know, I read Tony Robbins' book and I, I and fees, fees are the devil. And, and, you know, there's a lot of truth to that, right? But depending on how I'm positioning myself, I've got to look at people that are providing a similar need stat, state, but doing it with somehow a model that does not have management fees or squeezing down on that. So it's a, it's a great example actually of, of something that could, you know, show up as, Oh wait, this, this is a competitor. So the, um, so the, the insights level is, is basically what we call that. And, and this is where you're trying to just get insights into the direction your customer are going. And again, you're, you're really focused here on, um, on empathizing with your certain customers. So then as you build the vision layer, which is kind of our strategy. So now we're going to look at all that. We're going to go, okay, what's the layer above that? We're going to go out to market and we're going to now optimize customer experience as, as, as the thing that differentiates us. Because again, the only thing we can differentiate on is customer experience at the end of the day, because returns, you know, come and go, but returns are part of the thing. And, um, and so, when we start looking at the vision layer, we're now, we're now taking our business goals. So what is the fund's goal? So maybe it's a certain AUM you know, target uh, for, for 2020 or whatever. And we have three business goals typically, like three, you know, three major business objectives that we're trying to hit in our fund. So that node on the second layer goes directly above the node on the insights layer that says, um, here's my customer needs. Now, the reason why we bring that up is because you can name whatever three goals you have. Many people already have like their, their strategy laid out for 2020. And so you just copy and paste it. What you're looking for here is whether there's any misalignment in how you're going to execute that tactically with the customer need. Meaning, am I going to violate a customer need that's core by hitting my objective a certain way? I'll give you an example outside of this industry. If what I'm going to do is I'm going to, you know, shut down my retail footprint at Michael Kors because e-commerce is more profitable. 
what I, what I, you know, this was a real case study, actually. What I'm failing to realize is if I look at it on paper as a CFO, well, then I can, I, I can justify that because e-commerce as a channel was more profitable and my stores are not. So I'm going to shut down these hundred stores. But what I failed to realize is that because I never set up my attribution right and I treated e-commerce as a channel, it was where a sale got made, but where the fulfillment occurred was in store. So for instance, in that use case, one of the things that happened um, was that people bought online, but part of why they converted when they did was because they could pick it up at the retail store near their house. And that doesn't sound like maybe a big deal because it happens all the time, but that means that the load of cost was, was born at the unit level, store number, whatever, but the revenue was attributed to the e-com channel. And the only cost attributed there was the advertising and the cost per acquisition. And why that's wrong is that if my conversion was based 60% of the time on me being able to pick it up next door and just order it conveniently online so I didn't have to walk through the whole store and deal with all that stuff, by removing the stores, I removed my conversion rate. So it's one of those things where I have to make sure that my need state of my customer was I want the convenience of ordering it online and being able to shop without being talked to. But I also want the convenience of picking it up and returning it into a physical store near my house. You remove the physical store, you take away one of my need states, and now I go elsewhere. And so it's about looking at the goals through the lens of these are our business objectives and how we go about achieving them cannot violate one of the core customer needs or we're going to be setting ourselves up for some pain. Um, likewise, above the customer node, or I'm sorry, above the competitor node, we're looking at, on the bottom left now, we're looking at touch points. So some of your audience may or may not have heard of things like journey maps and touch points, and these are mostly heavy marketing terms and things like that, but they're important to know. The customer journey map is a, is a you know, big thing that you'll hear a lot in customer experience or in UX and in design because it looks at what's the journey from awareness all the way through, you know, loyalty, right? So I become aware that I have a problem. I start to search. I then evaluate. I consider. I, I purchase. I make a buying decision from brand A versus B. Then that I take delivery on that. Then there's an issue and then I have to get it serviced or I have to whatever. And then there's a resolve or there isn't. And then I'm either loyal or I'm not, right? And I defect. And so, customer journey mapping is something that a lot of organizations have done and there's touch points along the way and there's different touch points because with over 70% or whatever it is now of search being done on a mobile device, right? As an example, one touch point is search. Well, if I'm a fund manager, I go, well, how does that relate to me? My people aren't searching for me. Well, maybe they are because more than likely when they read the email or when they listen to the podcast or whatever, they're listening to that on their iPhone or on their Android or whatever their phone of choice is. And if there's downloadables or if there's investor relationships, stocks or if there's PDFs or if there's things that are harder to read on a mobile device, their first, their first intercept, their first touch point with you on that material may come across their LinkedIn or some feed while they're mobile. And depending on how well you perform or seamlessly translate into capturing that so that you can deliver whatever that asset is that they want into, into a desktop or a different experience, that is more conducive to consuming it. If you can do that, well, then you win that touch point. If you don't, then you're, you've got an area to improve. And so what, we, what you're looking at when you're at the vision layer is, if I look at the touch points that my customer goes on from the time I don't know them till I build a relationship with them and they're no longer general solicitation and now 
they're a prospect to be an LP. And now I've got them through PPM. I've got them through, you know, subscription docs. I've got them through all that. They've wired. And now I'm maintaining that relationship, right? I'm reporting. I'm doing all that stuff. There's this whole journey that you go through. So you're just trying to think of where are we weak? Because the, the third node on the vision layer is calibrating everything to scope. So I've got my three major business objectives that don't violate from the area below what my customer needs are. I've now looked at the touch points and I'm going to invest energy, time, and money into optimizing one of those touch points because I've done the math and I figure out if I really do well here at point B versus whatever, then I get a five to 10% increase in my output over here at letter Z. And so this year I can't, you know, boil the ocean or all those things, right? I can only do one thing. I'm going to calibrate that thing within the next 12 months to this level of resources and scope. So that's what you do at the vision layer. Then the third layer is, is, you know, in, in fast, you know, talk is, uh, is basically called the success layer. This is where you're executing. So now that you've baked that strategy and it's customer centric, what you're doing at the um, success layer is you are, uh, you're basically running your strategy. So you've set your strategy at the vision layer and that's the top node above goals on the other level and above customer on the bottom level. And you're now humanizing those tactics, which basically means you're, you're not getting to your, 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 you're fancy and you're, you're architected, but you're not being fancy, meaning you're remembering that human beings are on the other end of this equation. And that as great as quant and data is that we all don't want to be thought of as data points. We all don't want to be treated like math, right? And we all have a human element that machines don't yet have and may not for another hundred something years that allows us to do what we do, which is feel. And no matter how quantifiable we may be, and no matter how rigid and investment minded we may be, we still all like being treated like a human. And so whatever our strategy is, as we execute that with tactics, whether it's updating our investor portal or updating you know, our newsletter or our thought leadership, whatever it is, we wanna speak through a human lens. We wanna execute those tactics with a human lens. We wanna communicate that way. And then we wanna use the data because we've put process and we've put um, machinery in place. When we do that, we get feedback because every single one of those interactions, whether they be happening machine to machine uh, on our behalf or whether they be happening through a phone call or an interface in person, they're all kicking off exhaust. And so if we can capture the things that matter, which we call measure what matters, don't value what you measure, you know, measure what, measure what you value. Um, if we can do that, then that gives us the feedback to then iterate in real time on that strategy. So we're not reinventing the strategy every, every cycle because we're in success and execution phase. We've said 2020, we're going to go achieve this and here's how we're going to go do it. But now what we're doing is we're tightening that loop. So where the loops come in is we've created a framework that says, look, you have the operational loop and then you have the innovation loop and they kind of orbit each other. So one is horizontal on the horizontal plane and the other one's vertical running through all three layers and they, they interlock. That way there's no friction. They're not rubbing against each other. They're not trying to stay on the same pace with each other. One can go in one revolution per annum and the other one can go a thousand revolutions per second. And they never violate each other, which is part of what organizations face is there's always the innovators and the people with the new ideas and the insights trampling over process people and vice versa, compliance, whatever. So this is allowing both people to understand where they are and which loop they're on and where those loops intersect and how when insights do emerge, there's a process for what we call discover, design, and deploying them into reality in the next cycle. So that's the summary, and I know that was a mouthful, but 
Um, it's a lot, a lot visually, a lot of pictures in this book. <laughs> That's great. Um, Chris, I, I'd love to talk a little bit more about something uh, specific, and that's chapter 13. Uh, you call it designing your ultimate marketing stack. And there are some interesting things in there, uh, including uh, CRM, marketing automation, and those kinds of things. And I think it might be um, interesting to our audience because that process um, where you kind of automate your marketing to basically, let's say a lot of investment managers, they write a quarterly letter. That's that's a great marketing tool if you can get it into the right hands and get the right people actually receiving and reading this. Uh, So that's where CRM comes in, uh, marketing automation and so forth. Uh, Maybe you can share some insights from from that chapter that might be uh, relevant. Um, it's, you know, it's been a while since I wrote it. So, uh, <laughs> I, I know the chapter, but, um, insights, I think if there's a specific question that jumped out at you, I can answer that. I think if it's more of a general, like, how do I do it or what should I be thinking about when I do it? I could, I could go that direction, but is there a specific question, you know, or a section that jumped out like a specific CRM or a specific strategy that, that um, stood out? maybe just some thoughts on basically, you know, I, let's say I started my investment firm. I'm going to write a quarterly letter, but right now my email list is just uh, my friends and family. I'd like to grow that. You know, how should one think about growing that uh, email list, let's say, so that uh, we can start uh, getting people into the funnel? Got it. Got it. So, well, and I can, I can maybe do you one better than even illuminating on the book. I can, and and this is, this is an open offer for anybody who wants to, you know, do it. Um, We are actually in the process of launching uh, our own newsletter and it'll be a brand new newsletter. Um, The, the working title is still being worked out. That's how new it is. It's, it's going to be off of the wealth matters 3.0 kind of content stream um, and I'm not sure whether what we're going to call it yet. It'll, it may be called the Opportunity Age, which is another um, brand that we've kind of owned for a while that we've been wanting to do something with in this regard. But neither here nor there. What I'm, what I'm going to be doing, what I'm happy to do is allow everybody to watch exactly what we do and learn from our successes and learn from our failures and share, share openly um, with anyone who wants to. Uh, the tools, the, the process, the things that we're doing in real time. Um, so if you want, just, you know, make sure you email me and, and um, I'll add you to that. So one of the ways that you build a newsletter is you hop on podcasts um, and you hop on other people's webinars and you say yes to speaking at events that you don't get a fee for um, when you're trying to build um, that have your target audience and where you can be, what, what someone once told me um, is intelligently, what, what was the word? Uh, intelligently articulate or something like that, right? In other words, where you can demonstrate that you know what you're talking about, but in a way that isn't salesy, where you can basically provide value, where you can, when you can make people go, hmm, as, as one of our favorite newsletters out there, I'm sure in the investment community is, you know, the, the reality is, is that it's, it's an ongoing everyday process. There's no one hack, but one of the things to hack it is to, uh, 
you know, say yes to people like you when they ask you if you want to speak at an event that you know nothing about, right? Um, because every time that we do that, we are creating uh, opportunities to to win relationships. And and I think that's the thing is that what we another theme in digital sense specifically was whatever you're selling, whatever you and I are selling, as cliched as this may sound, it is more strategically valuable than ever. So I haven't just, this is the only way I know and want to do it. I don't want to be in business if I can't do this, but even if it wasn't, even if it was purely just tactical, genuinely building relationships is an asset. The ability to do that, the commitment to do that is key. And I think, you know, investor fund managers kind of get that. I mean, as quant as everything is at the end of the day, um, you know, we're, we're dealing with people's other than time, their most precious asset, right? We're asking them to allow us to be fiduciary in the growth and preservation of that asset that they've worked in some cases their whole life for. And if we're going to try and hack or skip building relationship, we're missing the whole point, right? It doesn't matter how good our newsletter is or how good anything is. We're going to be leaving opportunity on the table. So even if we've got a billion AUM and we could give a crap about people, we could have 3 billion if we actually showed that we wanted relationships with our LPs, right? Like, so, so in other words, it's not just the right thing to do. It's the human thing to do, but it's also a strategy today because everyone seems to have forgotten that. We gotten so used to counting uh, cost per clicks and, and, and cost per conversions that we forget that on the other side of that, a human being might just be pounding on their mobile phone because the ad won't go away. And it looks like they're actually engaging with us when really they're pissed off at us and never want to buy from us again. But we don't know that because the data says that they converted. And so with newsletters, I think it's a real opportunity to create long form content, which I believe will become more and more in vogue. So I think it's, I think it's a, a good strategy to invest time and energy into um, more than ever. I think a podcast if, if you like to talk is also one. I'm not the only one saying that, so there's nothing revolutionary in that idea. But I, I think that what people across the spectrum, especially investor type people, are more willing to do now is give more time to people they trust and who provide them insights and value than a, lot, a little bit of time to a lot of people talking about the same thing. And so I think there's a massive arbitrage opportunity in becoming um, trusted and insightful and consistently um, relevant. And if you've got a domain of expertise or, or an area of the markets that you guys crush and that you know well, or there's an emerging one like Opportunity Zones or something that you are on the forefront of and you're creating a green field for yourself there, to separate from the bloody ocean of equities and everything else, I think that's worth communicating. And how you build a list is you start with whatever system is the freest and the cheapest and that can scale, knowing it can switch it out. And you start creating the content and you start hijacking other people's audiences in an ethical way, which is who has an audience of people I don't have? How can I over-index on giving them insights and value because a portion of that audience might come find me on YouTube or on chrisjsnook.com and they might opt, opt in and say, Chris, I'd like to keep in touch. Or they might find me on LinkedIn and they might connect. And if I know what I'm doing and I've got processes around it, even at the simplest level, I can start to nurture that into a database of people that I can say, by the way, got a new 
new new newsletter coming out. Love to have you subscribe. It's free. There's a there's a paid version too, but the you know the Monday version or the you know the first week of the month is always free. Please subscribe here, right? And then you know executing it today. There's stuff that didn't exist back then, like Substack.com is a good resource for spinning up a newsletter platform pretty quickly. Um, you know, uh, there's there's a lot of different resources, but I would I would really focus on figuring out where that audience already is and then go get in front of them at the cheapest way possible and look really smart doing it. Well, that's, uh, that's good advice uh, right there. Um, maybe before uh, we wrap it up, I would uh, just be curious um, for your take on what seems to be a lot of pressure on, on people to be everywhere. You know, we kind of live in this social media world and often uh, you know, folks feel that they need to be present on every uh, social media there is and, and so forth. How should one think about, you know, doing it the right way and, um, and not just following what everybody else seems to be doing? I love, I love that you asked this question. Like, it is so timely that you asked this question. Um, I'm going to probably, you know, uh, be disagreed with by the, the people that are really great at this stuff, like Gary V. Um, and I respect Gary in a lot of ways. Um, but I think he would also understand this in, in some ways too. I, look, you know, if we demystify what's happened, we've gone from three channels, you know, I don't know how old everybody is, but I'm, you know, I was born in 1975. So I am so lucky because I, I came up through the age. I'm a, I am literally on top of every aspect of this that I can be because of the context that I have of going and graduating college in 1998 and not having a cell phone, not having an email address and not having a computer. I had a brother word processor that I wrote my final paper on the following year. I had an email address, my entire graduate school stuff at San Diego state was, was all communicated through blackboard, which was an online tool. And, and I went from no computer, no, you know, no cell phone, no answering machine to, uh, you know, a cell phone that was in my glove box for emergencies only mom and dad. And, you know, and then an email address, a computer, and then we've never looked back. Right. And then in 2007, we all know what happens, right. The, we put the power of, uh, of what a president 15 years ago didn't have in the palm of everyone's hand at scale with mobile phones. Right. So, so the reason why I say that is that if, if we think about it in all forms of today versus yesteryear versus 40 years ago, <clears throat> we still have channels of communication and we have places to advertise. And if you and I drove down the street that is right outside of your office, wherever everyone is listening to this and every millimeter, there was a billboard, we wouldn't see any of it. Right. Um, it would still be there. It would still be inventory. Someone would still sell us the right to put our brand on it. But there would be so much noise that none of us would pay attention to any of it. And we'd be distracted, though, because there'd be someone who had figured out how when there wasn't one every millimeter, maybe when there was one, you know, that was every hundred feet and, it's, and it became a big one, like a big billboard provider, that they build an audience of people there, like a lot of people we know. So if you build, you know, 100,000 people on Twitter and then 500,000 people on Twitter back in 04, 05, or when, you know, or in the early days, 07, all of a sudden in 07, 08, 
you're a big influencer on Twitter and no one really knows what Twitter is, but it's coming. And so if you were smart, you learn how to leverage that audience into other channels that may emerge. And there's always going to be loss, right? You're going to invest in stuff that goes away. Um, and you're going to put time, energy, money, and content into platforms that disappear and don't get attention. It's roads that no longer get driven down, so to speak. But if you're looking at it today, you know, you have to look at it a little differently than maybe in 07. If you're looking at it today, you, you know, you're, you're in a situation where, um, you know, now it's, it's super noisy and you've got, uh, you know, you've got only a handful of dollars to spend and your audience is, is burnt out. And so what you're trying to figure out now is what channel is the most leverageable for me, where my core audience is, and let me focus there. And I think, again, if you have nothing but a really weak LinkedIn, you know, presence or a present LinkedIn, and you don't have any following anywhere else, then a newsletter is a great way. Because if you're going to invest in something, invest in something that is yours, right? And then start to use some of these other platforms where you know your audience congregates as a uh, on-ramp to that. Um, but, you know, I personally deleted Facebook about a month ago, um, completely Instagram, because there's no strategy to it. And personally, I don't want to be somebody else's product. So I think you're going to see more and more people move that way. And for the people that are fund managers that may never have even been on that stuff to begin with, you know, that cycle's kind of already happened and you don't necessarily have to go try and catch it now, right? It's kind of like where it also doesn't mean apathy and it doesn't mean saying, see, I, don't, I told you I never had to do any of that stuff. That's not what I'm getting at either. What I'm saying is pick one, commit to it, build it and know that it could go away. But if you build it and you build real relationships there, those relationships will find you later, right? So as long as you're building brand through real relationships and then you have, you know, customer experiences that focus, then you can experiment on other channels as you get one going and know that if all of a sudden, you know, LinkedIn disappeared and got disrupted by something else that you have a core audience of people that as, as that next thing emerges, uh, will find you because you've got, you've got presence and you've got a real relationship. Well, Chris, uh, I'll leave it there. It's been terrific uh, speaking with you. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be here uh, and for uh, sharing your insights uh, into this uh, very interesting space and uh, topic. Well, appreciate it. And um, anyone that wants to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn or I'm sure somewhere in the conference notes or whatever you'll have, you'll have my email and stuff, but it's uh, chrisjsnook.com is an easy place to find me and um, would love to connect with anybody or answer any questions offline that people have after the event. Terrific. Uh, the book is Digital Sense, the common sense approach to effectively blending social business strategy, marketing, technology, and customer experience. Thank you all very much for uh, listening. Goodbye for now.